who said that she had become a vegetarian. And so like, that's cool. You know, she's a professing Christian. And uh, I was like, you know, why? Uh, well, in the course of the discussion, um, she implied that, in a sense, she was more spiritual um, by that, uh, because, you know, with the cruelty to the animals and, and all those things. You know, I don't have a problem with a person being a vegetarian. What I have a problem with is what Paul talks about here. When we try to, to say that this choice that I made about what I eat, that that is somehow something that makes me more spiritual than you. Now, I happen to know that I am more spiritual because I do eat meat. Um, no, no. Uh, you know, we can divide over every kind of issue. It, it, it becomes so simple. I, I just think back to a few months ago. Before the November election, uh, John Piper came out with a blog or some kind of article on who he was going to vote for and why he was vote for them. And some of you who are on Facebook saw my response to that, uh, in which I disagreed with him greatly. I disagreed with his position then. I still disagree with it even more today. Already some of the warnings that I gave in that article have already come to pass. Nevertheless, I love John Piper. I highly respect him. You know, even healthy, mature Christians who have much of the same doctrinal positions can still disagree. In Acts 15, two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, traveled to the city of Jerusalem to meet with the elders and with James, the brother of our Lord, who was the head of the church at that time, to discuss a very controversial issue over how do we accept Gentiles in the church? Do they have to become uh, Jews? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow the law or not? And after some very heated discussion, according to the early verses of Acts 15, the church came to a unified decision on what to do about Gentiles coming into the church. The church at that time was primarily Jewish. At the end of Acts 15, we have a different scene. Paul and Barnabas, these co-missionaries on the first missionary journey, are planning on going back out to reinforce the churches that they had visited on their first missionary journey, and they get into a very heated discussion as well. And as they discuss this very heated discussion, they end up splitting. One going one way, the other one going the other way. Now think about that. In the same chapter in the book of Acts, you have two situations. One situation, 
church is dividing over the issues of the Gentile-Jew relationship, and, and yet they come to a unified decision about that. And yet here in this second event, just two people, and they can't agree. And they divide, and they go off to do ministry separately from one another. To understand when Christians can agree to disagree and when they must stand together, we need to understand what, what this passage before us is talking about and the next couple sermons that will grow out of this as well. We need to notice from our theme from this passage, those whom God welcomes, you should welcome. Those whom God welcomes, you should welcome. Now, figuring that out might be a little bit more difficult, and we'll talk some about that. But if we are going to enjoy eternity with brothers and sisters in Christ for whom Christ died, then we have a responsibility here on earth to fellowship with them and to interact with them. Now, you may not know the rest of the story about the split between Paul and Barnabas. But that division did not divide the church. It divided those two individuals. They had to go separate ways to carry out their ministry. But though they disagreed about the personal styles of evangelism and church planting, they remained friends. And they continued to serve the Lord faithfully. We recognize that they had this heated discussion so that for a time they could not do ministry together. We understand that. And we see in the church today that there are issues like that that we face. But if we follow Paul's advice in this chapter, and particularly these verses, we can avoid making those divisions so that we don't fellowship together. So, if you will welcome those whom God welcomes, notice how you should not divide over disputable deliberations. That, that's what, what Paul says here in this uh, early part, that, that there are disputable matters. That when we deliberate over things and we come to a conclusion about what we should or should not be doing, we need to recognize that many times, much of those, many of those decisions are disputable. In other words, not necessarily everyone has to follow what we do. Some eat vegetables and no meat, and others eat vegetables and meat. And some eat only meat. Does that make us more spiritual? Now, Paul is talking about something more than just whether we eat meat or not, or... Uh, those things, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the, the point is, we may disagree on those kinds of activities. We might dispute them. But at the same time, we can still fellowship together. We can still be united as one in Christ. I'm sure you have 
yourself had different discussions, perhaps heated discussions with Christians over various issues. Even the apostles disagreed from time to time. Paul tells us of interaction between him and Peter in Acts or in Galatians chapter 2. But that should not lead us to condemnation of those individuals. There is therefore now no what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ. And remember it's those who are in Christ and that that does make a difference, but no condemnation. If God does not condemn them, why should we? So let's look at verse 1 where he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Not to quarrel over those disputable deliberations that we have. Now, Paul lays out in that verse, he lays out three issues facing the church. That church, particularly in Rome, but it faces every church. The weak in the faith, welcoming them, those who are in the faith, and wrangling over matters of faith. So let's examine how he deals with those issues in this passage. First, you need to understand Christian liberty. What is Christian liberty? And how does that work? Paul has instructed the church in Rome back in chapter 13 that they should not be involved with quarreling and jealousy. And now he's opening that up. He's helping us to understand why he, he worded that, why he put that there with all those other bad things like you know, sexual immorality and, and idolatry and, and those things. And then he adds on to that quarreling and jealousy. Chapter 14 takes us into those issues. We may not have the same problems that the early church had, but the 21st century church has enough concerns of its own for us to deal with. One of the gravest dangers the evangelical church faces today is continued division over ethnic, political, social controversies that face us in our American society. The natural tendency for human beings is if I disagree with you, then I'm going to go my own way and I'm going to leave you. That's a natural tendency, right? But that's a sinful tendency. Just because we disagree over issues, we shouldn't be building walls of separation, looking down on those with whom we disagree and even stopping fellowshipping with people that maybe we once enjoyed fellowship with. The evangelical church, especially fundamentalist and reformed individuals like us, tend towards fence building, as if the people with whom we disagree are spiritual illegal aliens. Now, we must build border walls, spiritually speaking, between those who are not in Christ and those who are, those who are false teachers. And we'll discuss that later. But, but Paul is warning against shutting out brothers and sisters in Christ simply because we have differing opinions 
on certain issues. If you narrow down who you're going to fellowship with to those who agree with you on every position, go make your own church because you're the only person that agrees with you all the time. We're not going to always agree with one another. But it also means that you're the weak Christian. If you cannot tolerate others who have differing opinions, then you fit in the category of being weak that Paul talks about here. Now, our English translation does not make a differentiation between the word faith in verse 1 and the word faith in verse 2. But there is a distinction. You see, in in verse 1, if you compare verse 1 with verse 2 and the word faith there, Paul says in verse 1 that the individual of weak, he doesn't say weak faith, all right? He says that they are weak in the faith. Weak in the faith. In other words, he's talking about the, the, the Christian faith. He's talking about the, the doctrines of Christianity. So it's not that they are weak in faith, that they have little faith but that they are immature in their understanding of Christianity, of what it means to be a Christian and in Christ. They are weak in that understanding of the doctrines of Christianity and the practice of Christianity as it works out under the new covenant. Now in verse 2, there is no article, there is no the before, it's just weak in faith. And there, he's actually talking about the weak uh, are, are being, um, having these divisions or these issues, which are really issues of something that you have an opinion on. All right? So faith there, again, is not how strong is my faith, but what is it that I'm believing myself? What are the personal disputable matters that, uh, that, that I hold to, that you don't hold to. And so he's, he's differentiating between the faith, what we all must believe in Christ, and being immature in that, or the disputable matters, the opinions that we have about how we live out the Christian faith in our lives or in our church services and those uh, kinds of things. So persons who are weak or immature in their faith, they tend to be afraid of doing something wrong, of offending God in some way, and so they begin to build rules and regulations that, uh, that say, well, you know, I, I shouldn't do this because that's going to lead to this sin or that might lead to that, which is really what the Pharisees did. They took the laws of God in the Old Testament and they started building fences around those laws. They they added to those laws. In this particular situation that Paul is talking about, he's talking about two things. He's talking about unclean foods and he's talking about the Sabbath and living out the Sabbath. And those are the issues that he's concerned with because you have Jewish Christians in Rome and you have Gentile Christians in Rome. Now, generally, we would think that the Gentile Christians are the weak ones, but Paul is addressing the Jewish believers as the weak ones in the faith. Not weak in faith, 
but weak in the faith and their understanding of how that works out in Christ. So the Jewish Christians in Rome felt that they needed to continue to follow the Sabbath laws and the various festivals that God had ordained under the Old Covenant, as well as the covenant dietary laws of clean and unclean foods. Now in Galatians, Paul explains why those who hold such beliefs were immature in the faith, as he corrects the Galatian believers who are being led astray by the Judaizers. These people are saying, you have to do this. If you're going to be really a good Christian, you have to follow these particular laws, like circumcision and other laws from the Old Covenant. Paul explains to those believers in Galatia why those beliefs were immature. And he speaks of that in Galatians 5. There we read, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you remember back in chapter 2 of the book of Galatians, Paul had actually confronted Peter on these very issues, in which Peter was separating as a Jew, separating from the Gentiles in terms of how they ate and, and those things. And Paul confronts him and he says, Peter... We, as Jews, couldn't follow those laws. As much as we tried, we couldn't keep those laws. And now you're trying to make the Gentiles, who didn't grow up with this, try to follow those laws? No. In the next few weeks, we're going to get into specific examples facing the early church that Paul discusses and then how that applies to us. But for now, I want to lay out a framework for us what Paul is saying here. And he begins by revealing that the mature or the strong Christian knows that Christ has set us free from the law because he has fulfilled the old covenant laws and the, uh, the, the types of the old covenant. And so he has set us free from those. And yet, Paul says... Even as we welcome these, the, the weak believer into the church, those who, who still feel the obligation that they have to follow those if they're going to be faithful to what God has said. Despite the tendency towards feeling the need to follow the dietary laws or the, the worship styles, he said, don't let them create the division in the church. Stay united as brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ has given us liberty. But as we understand that Christ has given us liberty, notice as well, you need to distinguish non-Christian license. In other words, we have liberty, but we do not have license to live outside of Christ and the ways of Christ. The old covenant restrictions on worship and eating have been lifted. But the requirements for holiness and order in the church have not. People who use Christian liberty as as an excuse for continually and habitually living in some kind of sin are abusing what Paul is talking about here and what he's talking about in Galatians. You must take Romans 14 in light of what he says in the rest of the book of Romans, 
and what the Holy Spirit teaches in the rest of the Old and New Testament. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, but it's not a central part of these verses. It is a central part of Romans 14, and we will get to those points as we move on through this chapter in the next few weeks. However, you cannot call yourself a Christian, John writes in 1 John chapter 3, you cannot call yourself a Christian if you live like the devil during the week. Paul, writing to the Galatians there in chapter 5, he begins in verse 1 with those words we read, for freedom, Christ has set you free. But he then goes on and he explains what he means, and he ends that section of talking about Christ giving us freedom. He ends it with these words in verse 13. You, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do not use the fact that we are saved by grace alone as the excuse for living in sin. Remember back in chapter 6? Shall we go on sinning that grace might abound? Megenita. God forbid. May it never be said amongst Christians that that's what we think. In Romans 8, passages that we have been studying and memorizing. The scripture says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We need to realize that both of those are laws. There is a law of the spirit of life. And there is a law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is trusting in our outward behavior as if that was going to save us. But the law of the spirit of life is still the law. Jesus summarized that law in the two great commandments when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need to love God wholeheartedly and love your neighbor, and as Paul explained back in chapter uh, 13 also, and chapter 12, also love your enemy as yourself. It is a law. We are not under the old covenant law, but we are under the law of Christ. The New Covenant law may be a law of love, but it's love that serves, that cares about other people, loves the neighbor as yourself. We're going to see that in the sermons coming up. So if you are going to welcome those whom God welcomes, you should not divide over disputable deliberations. But second, Notice, you should not divide over denominational distinctions when you welcome those whom God welcomes. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that denominations are wrong. 
I have a whole class that I used to teach up at New York School of the Bible on denominations and why denominations are essential and why they are also sinful. <laughs> they are necessary, but in Christ and in eternity, there will be no denominations. A refusal to fellowship with other Christians from different denominations because you disagree with them on disputable matters is wrong. Just because we disagree on issues that there has not been clarity given in the word of God does not mean that we cannot fellowship with those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are going to spend eternity with them, let's do a little bit of that now in preparation for them. I want you to see how Paul explains this idea in verse 2 and 3, where he says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and not, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Now, for you children who don't like to eat your vegetables, that does not mean that you are the strong in this case. Notice Paul doesn't say that they don't eat vegetables. He says they eat everything. <laughs> so, looking at this passage, Paul is identifying two areas, two issues um, there. Well, actually one here and then one later. Uh, this issue of what we can eat. This is not a teaching on what we can eat. Paul is addressing specific issues in the church in Rome at that time. Where you had the Jews and you had the Gentiles working together in ministry in one church. And so he's addressing those issues, and particularly the issues of those Jewish people who had grown up under the kosher laws. And they had been taught for their whole lives two things. Don't eat anything unclean. And the second, things that are offered to idols. So this is probably talking about both of those things. And so when you're living in Rome or you're living in New York City, the chances are that the people with whom you are eating, Gentiles, may not follow the kosher laws. And that would make it difficult for somebody who grew up under those laws. And so Paul is saying to them, Honor both. Recognize those issues. Honor both. Don't get all hung up over these things. Those are opinions. They are disputable matters. They are personal beliefs. Let's not separate over those kinds of issues. But you do need to understand that there will be congregational loyalties. Those congregational loyalties are loyalties to what your church teaches 
or what your denomination teaches. So when you come to Metropolitan, there are certain things that we do and that we don't do, certain beliefs that we have, ways of interpreting the scripture that are different from the ways that some other denominational groups interpret the scripture. Does that make us more spiritual or less spiritual? (laughs) Sometimes I wonder, right? But what Paul is saying to us is, are these people in Christ? That's why we're saying in Christ alone. That's the issue. The issue is, are they in Christ? We may have a different way of interpreting the scripture. But if we interpret it a bit differently, doesn't necessarily mean that we cannot relate to the people and fellowship with them. When churches or denominations split over external matters, like dress codes, music styles, church government, entertainment, that does not please God. God is not for disunity. However, when churches divide over more substantial issues, issues of of serious doctrinal or practice, uh, practice issues, then God is not displeased. Now, notice I didn't say that God is pleased that we do that, but he's not displeased over those divisions. Why? We're going to discuss that more again when we get to the end of chapter 14, but ultimately it is because God wants us to be serious about what we believe. And if we believe that the scripture teaches certain things, that we're serious about those. That we don't just say, eh, well, whatever you believe, that's fine, you know, you can hold to what you believe, I hold to what I believe. I don't know why I believe it, but, eh, you know, that's, that's the way it is. No. We should be serious about the beliefs. We should study to show ourselves approved unto God. We should want to know what the truth is and pursue it with a passion. But when we think the scripture teaches a certain truth, we should hold to that until we are shown otherwise through the scriptures by the Holy Spirit. God wants us to live and think according to the Christian conscience. The term denomination actually came from the preparations of the Westminster Standards. Uh, The uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster um, Shorter Catechism, Westminster Longer Catechism. But the the, uh, discussion of that at Westminster, which is where those terms came from, there was a small group of Baptist pastors in particular that at the end of of the studies and the preparation could not, under good conscience, sign the document because they believed in baptism by immersion and the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, holds to uh, infant baptism. And so they they could not sign that document. And in the discussion, they wanted broader terminology used, and and the majority uh, didn't want that. But in their discussion about that, they said that 
we should not have a division over things that we denominate differently. Right? That was a term they actually used, that we denominate differently. The word denominate, according to the Free Dictionary, means to give a name to or to designate something. And so they're saying, we, are, we, we designate, you know, baptism is by believers. You designate it as for infants. So if you want us to, to have a good conscience, a clear conscience on this, the terminology has to be a bit broader. They designated issues of doctrine and practice differently because of conscience. We're fallible human beings. We don't always interpret the scripture accurately. We try. It is our goal to do so. But even with the Holy Spirit at work in us, there are differences of opinion on how you interpret certain passages of scripture or even certain uh, applications of scripture. Those differences should not hinder us from fellowshipping with people who hold a different opinion on this. Listen to how Paul handles those different differences, denominational differences in a sense, in Philippians chapter 3. He has just laid out his you know, arguments and, and things about the Christian faith and how to live out the Christian faith. And he comes to having finished that discussion, and he ends it with these words. Let those of us who are mature think this way. That is, you know, those of us who are mature, right, the strong in the faith, we should understand that what I'm teaching you is what God wants us to do. All right? But that's not the key. Here's what he goes on to say. And if in anything you think otherwise, that is, you are not fully convinced that what I'm saying is, is the right way to interpret the Scripture on, this, on these matters, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that ultimately to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Let us remain firm in what we understand the Scriptures to be saying, until the Holy Spirit convinces us otherwise through the scriptures and through maybe other uh, individuals teaching us. Don't be satisfied that we have all these denominations. We should want unity. Church leaders should be working towards that unity in belief and practice primarily when the practices have caused division. And yet at the same time, we understand that there can be separation over those kind of issues that are disputable matters. So you may remain loyal to denominational distinctions, but notice how you need to distinguish congregational legalism. You see, that's the issue for Paul here. The issue is, is not do we have differences of opinions, but are we saying that my opinion, if you don't hold to it, you're not a good Christian. 
or you're not a Christian at all. That's legalism. You see, the Greek brothers in Rome were the Jewish individuals who felt that their loyalty to the Jewish denominational heritage made them eat only vegetables and later on follow the Sabbath laws and rules. Paul commanded the church leaders to accept everyone that professes faith in Christ, accept them all as full members within the church, no distinction between them. However, he warned against letting them promote their legalistic approach as if it made them more holy by following those rules and those regulations. That's where Paul draws the line. In verse 1, he says, welcome him, but not to quarrel over those opinions. Paul has little tolerance for divisive people. They belong in the fellowship. They can practice what he calls their weak faith, but don't tolerate their legalism in their attempts to force other people to hold their positions if they're going to be spiritual. That's why he wrote the whole book of Galatians. So in verse 3 he writes, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and, not, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. In other words, agree for a time to disagree on these issues, but continue in fellowship, continue in unity, at the same time protect the faith. The strong believer knows that he or she has liberty in Jesus Christ. That's wonderful. They're free from the old covenant legalism. But not every Jew, nor every person who, like myself, grew up in a holiness church, always can see things that clearly when it comes to the issues of life and practice. So not only did Paul deal firmly with the Pharisees' legalism in Galatians, but he also deals with it in a different form in the book of Colossians. In Colossians 2, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that are, all will perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Right, now, that's a rather complex series of things that he's saying there. What he's basically saying is, whenever people start to say, if you're going to be a good Christian, you have to act this way. You have to do this. Now, we're not talking about things that the Bible is very clear about. We're not talking about sexual immorality. We're not talking about idolatry. We're not talking about doctrines that are essential for us to believe. The Trinity, the two natures of Christ, both fully God, fully man, and other things like that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the external ways in which we practice our faith. Do we stand when we sing songs 
Or is it okay to sit? Can we wear, you know, a, a hat in church or not wear a hat in church? Can we get a tattoo as a Christian or not? No, Sean, don't leave. Uh, (laughs) Those are the kinds of things that he's talking about. So when the Jewish individuals were thinking that because God said, keep the Sabbath day holy, and the ways that they were doing that, that's what made it holy, and they were promoting those ideas in the church, Paul lays down the, 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 the gauntlet and he says, no, you don't put up with that in the church. You don't accept that. When we get to the place where we start legislating the outward actions instead of the inward heart, then we have crossed the line. Anytime people believe that doing some outward action impresses God and makes God like them better, they've crossed the line into legalism. Mature Christians know the weakness in the faith of the immature Christians, or the weak Christians, as he puts it here. Seldom, however, does the immature Christian grasp that those outward actions that he thinks are so important should not be done, or don't need to be done. It's not that they shouldn't be done, but don't need to be done. They can do them. As long as their heart is right with God, you can can practice your faith in those different ways. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you making it that that somehow causes God to like you better than the person who doesn't do those things? That is when you cross the line. And so he says, welcome the weak, but don't let the weak weaken the church. Now, if you welcome those whom God welcomes, you should not divide over disputable deliberations. Second, you should not divide over denominational distinctions. And finally, you should not divide over damnable destinations. What condemns a person to hell? I said earlier you have to draw lines over issues that the Bible says excludes a person from being a Christian. Paul is not saying that we accept everyone into the church. The church must protect the sheep from wolves. Ephesians, uh, Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. In Galatians, Paul damns those who dare to teach a different gospel. However, the church leaders must be careful not to damn those whom God has accepted as his child, weak as they may be in their understanding of the Christian faith. So look at the end of of verse 3 and in verse 4. It says, God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? If it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, if a person has accepted the gospel truth, having trusted in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, so that they might have a right relationship with God, 
then who are we to disqualify them because they disagree with certain ways that we interpret the Scripture? So you need to understand contentious limitations. Paul is saying there are limitations as Christians that we draw the line on, but let's not do it on everything. I once interacted with, uh, for a while, with a fundamentalist independent Baptist pastor of a very large congregation. And he and I would meet to discuss uh, various things, and I would try to get his congregation to join in some of the evangelistic outreaches that we're doing in the community, and, and he continuously said that they would not do that. And so I, I said to him one day when we were meeting, I said, now, I really don't understand. You and I, we can sit down together and we can fellowship and we can talk and, and we can communicate on these things, uh, these issues, but you won't do joint ministry with our church or with, you know, other churches that are solid and evangelical. Just because we have differences on secondary and tertiary, you know, issues. And he looked at me and he said, Gardner, that's your problem. You believe there are such things as secondary and tertiary issues. We believe every bit of truth is necessary. What he meant by that, and I would agree, I believe every bit of truth is necessary, but what he meant by that was how we apply those truths as well. There are limitations to what we can accept in the church and not accept in the church. Paul has made it clear that there are strong Christians and there are weak Christians or immature Christians. He's helped us to recognize that strong Christians are not bound by the old covenant restrictions, that they understand liberty without license, but that it is a foolish thing to try to get the weak Christian to understand all the wonders of the Spirit-led life and the law-led life right from the start, trying to get them to understand that. So you need to help them over time to understand those truths. For instance, what happens if a Muslim converts to Christianity and then they come to our fellowship downstairs and we're serving sausage? That could create a struggle for them as they see Christians eating pork. Or what about a Jew who becomes a believer and might not understand our failure to follow the Sabbath regulations? Or someone like myself who grew up in a holiness church might be shocked by a Christian drinking a beer or getting a tattoo. What about a former Hindu who has two wives what are they supposed to do when they become a Christian? You see, Paul's directions here are similar to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or, as he said elsewhere, you who are without sin cast the first stone. Now again, neither Jesus nor Paul are in any way saying that we don't judge. Christians can and should 
judge issues that are serious. But while we can and should dialogue on contentious issues, dialogue and judgmentalism are two different things. I may not understand why a Messianic Jew follows the Jewish Sabbath, but doing so doesn't necessarily mean that I have an issue with him doing that. And if he follows the Sabbath as a means of evangelizing to reach into the Jewish community, I actually will applause, uh, applaud him for doing so. But if he follows the Sabbath rules because he thinks that as a Jewish person he has to, or that it makes him somehow more spiritual because he's following those laws, then he's the weak Christian who's being talked about in this passage. He still doesn't understand his liberty in Christ. And yet he is still a Christian and still somebody with whom I must fellowship and do so joyfully. According to both Jesus and Paul, not judging does not mean that we don't recognize that some things that people do are wrong, that they need to be confronted on it. Right after Jesus said, don't judge, he turned around and said, don't cast pearls before swine. Well, how do you know that you're casting pearls before swine if you don't know who the swine is? You have to judge in order for that to happen. Paul has identified those who are strong Christians and those who are weak Christians here. How do you do that if you're not judging? If you're not evaluating what's going on? We are to judge the strong and the weak, but not judge for condemning a person over disputable matters. The church should not excommunicate someone for holding a different view on things that are matters of opinion or disputable matters. Well, how do you tell the difference? Notice that you need to discover Christ-like loving kindness. You see, Jesus puts up with disciples for three years, didn't he? And how many times, with Jesus putting up with his disciples, does he say, oh, ye of little faith, and roll his eyes? Okay, throw his hands up. Ah, how long do I have to put up with you? I mean, he said that a number of times in the Gospels. And yet, he didn't excommunicate them, didn't throw them out. And they became the leaders of the church in the next generation. A person who is truly born again belongs to the family of God. In John 17, Jesus said, Father, I have not lost one of those whom you've given me. And I pray that that would be true in the church. The son of perdition, yes, he's out. But those that the Father has given, those that the Father has loved from eternity past, then we must love as well. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ loves them, who are we to think that we are somehow better than him? Are we greater than God? If pre people prove by continuous habitual sin that they are not in Christ, if they refuse to accept the foundational doctrines of Christianity, yes, we can disown them. We've had individuals at Metropolitan who at times have had to be removed from the membership list because of sinful behavior 
or doctrinal issues that not just disagreeing with the church doctrine, but with the Bible itself. The church may remove them from membership, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. These are people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who are living rightly, but they've not yet understood the liberty that we have in Christ. So why do we quarrel over disputable matters or personal opinions that will not damn a person to hell? Remember our memory verses in Romans 8, 33 and 34? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's love one another with Christ-like loving kindness as we welcome those whom God has welcomed into the family of God. We should not respond like the elder brother in the parable of the two sons, sometimes known as the parable of the prodigal son. He refused to accept the wayward brother back into the family, even though the father had accepted him and had thrown a party for him. In the end, it was not the prodigal son who didn't belong to the family. It was the elder brother. Let's not be the elder brother. And so I ask you in conclusion, are you strong or are you weak in the faith? Do you understand liberty without license? Do you fellowship with those who may have differing opinions on certain matters, but at the same time still love Christ? Have you become bogged down in opinions rather than rejoicing in God-given opportunities? We're going to, because I preached long, uh, we're not going to sing that closing um, song, but let's prepare our heart for the communion meal. Because what is the communion meal but the very thing that we've talked about here? We are, because we are in communion with God, we are in communion with one another. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we bow our hearts before you, acknowledging, Lord God, our own sinful attitudes that have many times hindered us from fellowshipping with those who we'll spend eternity with because you have saved them and you've called them your children. We recognize, Lord God, that there are those who are false prophets, false teachers, that those are, are, there are individuals who uh, want to, to regulate laws upon believers that you do not regulate. And we understand that and, and we pray for wisdom to be discerning. But we also pray, Lord God, that you will give us your heart of love. For really, in the long run, we are all weak. Only Jesus Christ is strong. He is the only one, because if, as the song we sang earlier said, if you looked at, at us and everything about us, we would not stand but you are able to make us stand and you're able to make the weak brother stand. And so help us, Lord God, to be gracious, 
to be loving and encouraging one another in all the